Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in six different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church or how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. This is a little awkward. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. How does it feel to have an expectation that I'm supposed to be up there? (laughs) Let me ask you another question. How does it feel to know that I'm supposed to be up there, to know I'm in the room, to know I have the ability to be up there for me to not do it? Some of you are laughing just because it's awkward. How awkward is it to have an expectation that I'm supposed to be up there? That I can, I'm here, you've seen me, you know I'm here, you know I'm present, you know I have, you, you expect me to get up there and do what I normally do, to do what I'm always going to do, and you sat there wondering, something's going on, what's supposed to happen? And as awkward as that feels with me, I want you to imagine that times a million, but with God. Because sometimes that's what happens. We have an expectation that God is going to do something and he doesn't do it our way. So this morning, we're going to be talking about in our series, The Unknown. We're ending our series, The Unknown. We're not going to talk about a person as much this morning as we talk about a situation that involves not only a whole crowd of people, but a whole nation and a whole race of people that had an expectation on God, an unmet expectation, a misguided expectation. So to help you not feel as uncomfortable, I'm going to walk on back to the pulpit, and we're going to pray and get started this morning. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. I pray that, God, in the next few moments as I preach your word, as I speak, God, from the text, from your heart, that you would help me communicate your word the way that honors you and that speaks to your people. Bring hope to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, we're ending our series, The Unknowns, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the unknown. We're going to talk about expectations. As a pastor, I've learned something over the years. I've learned that a lot of conflicts, a lot of problems, they stem from misplaced, unmet expectations. Think about it like this. How many arguments have you gotten into with your spouse because you assumed that they would? You assume if I do this, they're going to do this. How many times have you been disappointed with your children because you thought that by now they already should know? Right? Let me speak to the children just for a minute. How many times have you been hurt by your parents because of the way that they responded, because they didn't respond the way you thought they would respond. They didn't acknowledge you the way you thought they would acknowledge you. They weren't merciful when you thought they would be merciful. 
How many times have we left jobs because we hope that by this point I would have gotten the promotion? I should have gotten the raise by now. I should have gotten that position by now. We assume that things are going to happen that don't happen. Expectations, if misplaced, can lead to frustration and misunderstandings. Now, let me be clear. Not all expectations are bad. When someone says they're going to do something, they should do it. You should expect them to do the thing that they said. But the problem comes in when we assume that people are going to do something that they never said they were going to do. Or worse, they say they're going to do something and we assume that because they said they're going to do that, it also means they're going to do this, this, and this. And again, you recognize this with people, but what happens when that's with God? How many of you would be honest enough, and you don't have to raise your hand or say a word, but how many of you would be honest enough to say, Pastor Gabe, I've been disappointed with God before. I've been upset with God before because I expected him to do something that he didn't, or he did something I didn't expect him to do. This week, this today, Sunday, is what we call in the Christian calendar Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, hence the shirt. And the reason why we call it Palm Sunday, I'm going to unpack that a little bit in this message today, but it's the beginning of what we call Passion Week. And Passion Week is the week that Jesus entered Jerusalem, and it's the week that precedes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It all falls within this seven-day period. I don't know if you know this or not, but the book of John, half of the book of John, literally half of the book is all about this week. That's how important this week is to us as Christians, as believers, It's also recorded, the thing I'm going to talk about today is recorded. This moment is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If God made sure that he put it in the book four times, how many of you know we should listen to what he has to say in it? The moment we're talking about is known as the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Let me give you a little bit of background as to what's happening, what's taking place, so I can set the scene, if you will, for this moment. Jesus is here on earth doing his earthly ministry, and he's been traveling around about different regions. He's been in Galilee mostly, right, in Capernaum. He's been in these different smaller cities. But he hasn't spent a whole lot of time in Jerusalem. And to the Jewish person, Jerusalem was the center of the world. Because in Jerusalem was the temple. And the temple was the place where they came to meet with God. And they believed that was the place God came to meet with them. So everything in the world revolved around the temple for them. And the temple was in Jerusalem the most important city in the world. And they had heard Jesus, this man that we've been hearing so much about, is coming to Jerusalem. When we're going to be in Jerusalem. And just before this moment, he raised, we're hearing these reports about this man. He just raised the man from the dead. A man named Lazarus. 
And there was a buzz about him. And the buzz was this. We think he might be the Messiah. He might be the one that we've been waiting for and expecting for hundreds of years, for generations we've waited for this man to come. Could he be that man? Because we've heard about the blinded eyes open. We've heard about the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. We've heard of some people even saying he's walked on water. This is crazy. Could this be the Messiah that's been promised And at this moment, this week, was a part of a festival, a big festival in Jerusalem, bigger than the Crawfish Festival, bigger than Festival International even. It's called the Passover. And in this time, the Passover, it was expected, and it didn't always happen, but it was expected that every Jewish man came to Jerusalem. Sometimes he would bring his whole family, but it was, there was an expectation that every Jewish man came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This celebration, this seven-day celebration. What were they celebrating, Pastor Gabe? They were celebrating the moment in history when God came and rescued them from Egypt. But in particular the moment that broke the Egyptian, the Egyptian pharaoh's hold on his people when God said, I'm going to send death to Egypt. And the firstborn of every one of the families in Egypt will die tonight. And the only way that the firstborns will not die is if you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on your doorpost. And if the death angel sees that blood on the doorpost, he'll pass over that home. Hence the Passover festival. So Jewish people from all over would come to Jerusalem. And it's, it's been said that the typical population of Jerusalem at this time was about 80,000 people. So many people lived in Jerusalem at this time, give or take, that's what's been said. But the historian Josephus, first century um, scholar, historian, he wrote that he believes three million Jewish people came to Jerusalem at this time. So from 80,000 people to three million Jewish people in this city at this time. That was a major jump in population. And all of these people are there, and they're hearing the buzz about this man. They're hearing the chatter. Did you hear about Jesus? Did you hear about Jesus? Did you hear about Jesus? And the fact is starting to settle, and he just might be the Messiah that we've hoped for, that we expected, that's come to save us. Now, why would they need a Messiah? Why would they need someone to come and save them and rescue them? Because they were under the oppression of the Roman people, the Roman government. They weren't an autonomous nation as they once were. They weren't a great and powerful nation as they once were. They were subjugated. They were subjects of the Roman Empire. So they had to pay taxes to Rome. They had to go home when Rome said it's time to go home. They had to be quiet when Rome said it's time to be quiet. And they knew their history and they were at one time, at one time a great and powerful nation that was now 
the subjects of Rome, and their deepest desire was that the Messiah would come and rescue them and be their king. That's the backdrop. That's what's happening as Jesus begins his journey to enter into Jerusalem. This is what the Bible says in John chapter 12, verse 12, it says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Many of them had never met Jesus before, but they'd heard about him. And their hope was that he was going to be the promised Messiah. And they show that. Now, again, we're talking millions of people coming to this one city because they had to. But they went out to greet Jesus because they wanted to. They hoped he was the one. And they showed their expectation. And you may be wondering, why palm branches? Why, why do we call this Palm Sunday? I want to explain it to you. In the book of Matthew, it actually says that it was palm branches and cloaks. So they were taking their jackets off and laying them on the ground, and they were waving these palm branches as Jesus passed by. And they were putting these palm branches, situating them on the ground so that as Jesus rode by on this donkey, he's riding by on palm branches, and they were waving. And this was a giant parade and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're making no subtle statements of what their expectation was. Be our king. Now, why palm branches, Pastor Gabe? Like, like you just asked. Few reasons. Number one, it was a nationalistic symbol. Right? And even in the Greek Olympics, when they, did, they had parades, they would wave the palm branches at the winner of the race. So that was a reason. There's a few other reasons that I want to point out, though. One of which I learned in preparation for this message, and I'd never known, never saw this before. But in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, verses 40 through 43, if you're taking enough, you're writing that down. God Speaking to Moses and Moses speaking to the people, he commanded the Israelites that as they were celebrating the Passover feast, they were to live outside for seven days. And the reason why they were supposed to live outside for seven days is God wanted them to remember what it was like for his people when he rescued them out of Egypt and they lived in the wilderness for 40 years outside. So God wanted them to remember that, but he told them that you could build this little tent, if you will, a little booth. And so for seven days, you were to live in this outside booth, this outside tent, and the covering of the booth was to be made of palm branches. So in essence, they were covering themselves with these palm branches for seven days, for a full week, this exact week that Jesus is coming through to Jerusalem. And I believe what they were really saying is, we want to take what's supposed to cover us and put it at your feet because we want you to be our covering. We want you to be our leader. We want you to be our king. 
For those of you that were here a couple weeks ago when we preached about Ruth and Naomi, you remember in the story when Ruth was there, yeah, when Ruth was with Boaz and she took his cover and covered herself and she basically asked him, will you be my covering? Here's a whole crowd of people asking Jesus to be their covering, to be their leader. Another reason why the palm branches were important is this. Jesus, in, in the old, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have a period of about 400 years that's not in the Bible, but it is in history books. And one of the historical books is the book of Maccabees. And it's the story of a man named Judas Maccabee. And Judas Maccabee, I'm just giving you backdrop, but just track with me. This man, Judas Maccabee, came and, and rescued God's people from the Seleucids or from the Syrians. And they had taken over the temple where man was to worship God and connect with God. And while, they were, while he was rescuing them, he cleansed the temple once again and rededicated the temple to God. And the people, again, in the same form, waved their palm branches at Judas, asking him to be their king. And as a matter of fact, the Jewish people to this day still celebrate that moment with Judas Maccabee, and they call it Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, because he rededicated the temple. And these, this crowd of people knew that as they waved their palm branches at Jesus, asking him to be their king. Are y'all tracking with me? The Bible also says they took their cloaks and they put them on the ground. Also, you'll see that throughout the Bible in stories like a man named Jehu in, in 2 Kings where he was anointed king and all of a sudden immediately his people threw their cloaks on the ground so that he would walk on them as their king. They knew what they were doing. They were asking Jesus to be their king. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there's a few reasons why he rode in on a donkey. I want you to see just exactly what was going on in the minds of these people as this moment was happening. Jesus gets on this donkey and he's riding on it into Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy. A prophecy that was over 500 years old from the prophet Zechariah. In chapter 9, verse 9, it says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. This happened over 500 years before Jesus even came to the earth. He fulfilled this prophecy in this moment. The second thing that he was doing was he was revealing his identity. Because up until this moment, there were people who wanted, they wanted to forcibly make Jesus their king, and he would deny it. There were moments they tried to make Jesus by force. You are going to be our king, and Jesus just walked through them and left them. There were moments that some of you have read about in the Bible where, where Jesus prayed for someone, or Jesus, excuse me, healed someone, and they got healed, and he would tell them, don't tell anybody. Some of you have read that in the Bible. Some of you watched it on The Chosen. Either way, you know that it happened. Right? Jesus would say that. 
because he was not yet revealing his identity. This is the very first time that Jesus publicly reveals, I'm your king. And they knew it. He was revealing himself, I am the Messiah. I am the king that you've been waiting for. I am the king you've been hoping for. And now is the time. But here's also where the problem comes in because not only was he revealing himself as their king, which they understood, he was also revealing himself as the lamb. He was both the king and the lamb. What do you mean by the lamb? During this Passover they would take each family what was responsible to bring a lamb to the temple to be slaughtered. And they would have this lamb with them during this time, and the lamb had to be examined. The priest had to examine the lamb, the lamb to make sure that it, it didn't have any defects or any flaws, right? And so the family would examine the lamb. What Jesus was doing when he came in riding on the donkey is he was declaring, I am your king, but I'm also the lamb. And he was being examined. He was being looked at. He was being seen. The third thing he was doing is he was coming in peace. He was letting them know, I'm coming in peace. Because in ancient Middle Eastern times, when kings would come into a city, if they came in on a war horse, you were in trouble. It was battle time. But if they came in on a donkey, it was signifying, I come in peace. So all of these things are taking place as Jesus is riding in on this donkey. Verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Jesus is coming in as king. Don't miss this. And even his closest followers didn't understand what he was doing. Even the people who ate with him, drank with him, slept next to him, watched him heal the sick, watched him raise the dead, watched him multiply fish and bread, watched him do these things. As he's doing this, even they did not understand what he was doing, let alone the people that were out there yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. They had an idea but they missed what he was really doing. They wanted him to be king and Messiah, and they had an expectation of what he was going to be. Here's my point. Sadly, we do the same thing. We expect God to do things that we want him to do, things that he's never even promised that he was going to do. And when he doesn't do the thing that we expected him to do, we get disappointed with him. We get hurt by him. Some of us even get angry at him because he didn't do what we thought he should do or he didn't do it the way we thought he should. Misplaced expectations cause hurt. They cause problems. God, you were supposed to keep my life problem-free. God, you were supposed to make sure that I got that job, that spouse, that miracle. And it doesn't happen. And instead of seeing that he has a bigger plan, we get disappointed, disillusioned, hurt by him. The Jewish people had a good hope. And I would hope that if 
this was happening to us, if we were that race of people, we were that nation, we would be hoping as well for a deliverer to rescue us. I would hope we would have the same type of hope, but in that hope, they missed his bigger plan. And let me tell you, there. let me show you how I know they were expecting this. The Bible tell, tells us, I'm going to break it down for you. Number one, how we knew this was their expectation. They came out to meet him in this parade format. This is Johnston Street in Mardi Gras times 800. Everybody's out there. Everybody is watching this one. And he didn't come in a giant float. He didn't come in a nice car sitting on the back waving. He was sitting on a donkey with his closest followers walking in a processional. And there's who knows how many people out there. And this parade is he just rides by them. This was the type of parade you gave to a king with his entourage. That's the parade they gave to him. Secondly, the way I know is they laid down, like as I mentioned, their palm branches. We've talked about what that meant. But then thirdly, they shouted, Hosanna. And that's a very interesting word that if I'm being honest, for many years as a Christian, I heard that in songs, I heard that in sermons, and I had absolutely no idea what it meant. Let me tell you what Hosanna means. Hosanna is a prayer. And this this is what that prayer is. Save now. That's what they were yelling. Hosanna. They were saying, save us, God, and do it now. Save us, Messiah. Do it now. That's what they were saying when they yelled Hosanna. They believed he was the Messiah and that he could rescue them. But their expectation was that he rescued them from Rome. So they're yelling that. They're saying, you're our king. The, ne- the next thing that we know, they were quoting Psalms 118, verse 26, when they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me explain something about Psalms 118. Psalm 118 was a song that you would sing during the Passover. And not only was it a song that you sing during the Passover, it's the last song that you sing at the very end of the Passover. So all three million of those people knew that song. And they knew it well, and they knew to sing it at the very end of the Passover feast. It was the last song. But the irony of that statement is they knew the song, and they even quoted it to Jesus And they missed the part in that exact same psalm that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They were prophesying something that they didn't even know what they were saying. We're going to sing about you, but we're also going to reject you. They knew what they were doing. Jesus, as a matter of fact, tells them after this moment, in Matthew 24, 25, I can't remember which one, but he tells them that the next time that you see me, as he pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, he tells them the very next time you see me, you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So wait a minute, what are you saying, Pastor Gabe? Because I thought this was the fulfillment of that. This was a partial fulfillment of Psalm 118. But he was saying, I'm going to come again. I'm going to come again. 
So they're yelling this out, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then lastly, they just say it. They just get blunt. Blessed is the king of Israel. You're our king. We believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the one who's supposed to rescue us. And the people thought that he'd come to rebuild and establish this earthly kingdom. And they wanted him to be their king. So what are we supposed to learn from this? Pastor Gate, why are you telling us this story? A few reasons. Number one, if you take a note, I want you to write this down. Jesus didn't come to build our kingdom. He came to build his. He didn't come to make your name great. He came because his name is great. God doesn't always do things the way that we think he will. And I know we're living in a very politically charged time in our nation's history. But let me just tell you this. God is not an American. And in quoting one of my favorite old 70s preachers, he said, God's not an American. He's not even a Republican. He's not a Democrat. God is not on our political side. We don't ask God to be, if God, are you on our side? That is never the question you ask because the question is always, are you on his? That is always the question. Are you on his side? Christianity is not about making you a better moral person either. It's not about you having your best life now, a little bit of moral improvement. Some of us, we, the, the new year begins and we think, well, let me start going to church and let me start going to the gym as if those are the same things. Let me get a little healthier. Let me, let me lose some belly fat. Let me lose a little bit of sin. That's not how this works. We don't serve him for what he does for us. We serve him because he's the God of the universe. And he did not come to establish our kingdom. He did not come to make our nation great. Let me tell you something. God loves the nations we're at war with. Have you ever stopped to think about that for a minute? God loves the nations. God loves the people that we are at war with. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be at war. I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is the fact God loves them. God loves your political enemies. God loves your mother-in-law. Some of you don't believe that. Jesus did not come to build our kingdom. He came to build his. The second thing I want you to know is this. We can't accept him the way that we want him to be. We have to accept him the way that he is. I love the way C.S. Lewis put this, the great author who wrote Mere Christianity, Narnia, Chronicle of Narnia, all those different things. I love the thing he says about, about Jesus. He says he's not a tame lion. Many of you remember from Narnia, Aslan was just a depiction or a picture of Jesus, Right? He says he's not a tame lion. In other words, he's kind, he's gentle, he's for me. His ferocity is not directed towards me, but make no mistake about it. He is not expected to do what I say. He is not a tame lion. 
Jesus didn't come to impress the crowd. He came to save them. And God's word will challenge you. It will change you. Listen, I've been a Christian since I was 16 years old. I got born again at 16 years old. I am 42 years old. And they are still moments. And I've read the Bible ever, ever since then. And there are still moments I open up the Bible and I go, God, I don't know if I agree with that. There's still moments I open up the Bible and go, God, I don't want to do that. And it's in those moments that I have to decide when my will is crossed with his will, am I going to yield my will to what he says? Because let me make something very abundantly plain and clear with you. He is not going to change his will. He is not backing down from what he says. God wants to challenge us. God And in those moments, we have to humble ourselves and we have to bow to him as Lord. We can't accept him the way that we want him to be. We have to accept him for who he is. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is kind. Jesus is loving. But Jesus means what he says. If he says it, he expects it. And we have to be willing to to follow him as that. What happens when the circumstances of life, God uses those things to teach us lessons that we wouldn't learn from wise counsel or the Bible? What happens when God puts people in our lives that we don't like them telling us, but he speaks through them to tell us? What do we do in those moments? We have to be willing to accept his will, not ours. The third point that you can take away from this is We can't hold God to our expectations. We cannot hold God to our expectations. Sometimes we're disappointed with God because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. And I have to be honest, I am guilty of this. I am with you. But he is not, nor has he ever been bound to do what I expect. He is only bound to do what he said he was going to do. That is the truth. And so many times, please hear me. I would not be a good pastor to you if I did not teach you this. So many times we get disillusioned and disappointed with God because we think that he's supposed to do something that the Bible never promises us that he is going to do. And we walk away from those situations and think, God, you can't be real, or God, I'm mad at you, or God, these things. When God's word is saying, I never promised you that. You have an assumption based on something you believe that you expect me to do that I never once told you I was going to do. You you cannot hold God to things that he's never said. I'll tell you, there's a scripture, and I'm going to quote it later on to you, but there's a scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse Verse 28, that we quote often here, God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I love that scripture. But let me tell you what that scripture does not say. God makes, God is always doing just good things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's not what it says. It says he works all things out for the good, meaning there are going to be bad things that he works out for the good because he loves you and you're called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean bad things won't happen. 
bad things will happen, but he's promised he will work them out for your good. The second thing that he doesn't say in that scripture, God works all things out for the good of everyone. It's not what it says. It says he works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why did this happen to this person that one time over there? I don't know what their relationship is with God. And God's never promised that everybody in the world is going to have a bed of roses and everything's going to be great every day of their life. Guess what? That went out of the window when sin entered the world. We invited death in. We invited starvation in. We invited greed and hurt and murder. We did that, not him. But somehow we expect that he is going to always make sure that everybody's, otherwise we make it a judgment against his character when he's the one who's come to redeem what we messed up. Can't hold God to our expectations. What we can't hold him to is what his word says. Now don't get me wrong. I'm a man of faith. Which means that if he said it, I believe in prophecy. I believe in the movement. I believe the Holy Spirit's still speaking today. I believe that if God said it, does not matter what the circumstances say. You grab a hold of it and you hold on in faith and you believe God regardless of what the situation looks like. I believe that. That's the truth. But the problem comes in when we just expect him to do things he never said he was going to. That's where we get disappointed. God, I expected my kids to be perfect. (laughs) Name one person that that's happened to. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he saw Lazarus from the tomb when he called, excuse me, Lazarus from the tomb and was raised and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting out of, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. There's two very important things I want to say that I'm going to rush past it for the sake of time. But the first one is this. That whole example of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is exactly what's playing out in front of us. Because they expected Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. And he waited until he died. And even when he showed up, he showed up and he felt the pain and the grief that everybody else there was feeling. And the shortest verse in the Bible happened in that moment when the Bible says, Jesus wept. He felt their pain. He felt their hurt. Even knowing that he was getting ready to raise him from the dead, Jesus feels our pain. He feels our disappointment, and he shares it with us. And with Lazarus, he raised him from the dead. Guess what? For all of us, God is going to work things out for our good. Most of the time, I believe it will happen in this life, but some of the times it will happen in eternity. Either we believe this or we don't. Either we believe that one day we will receive a a crown 
One day we will receive the reward of our sacrifice and the things we've given up or we don't. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And for us, whether you get your reward here, which I believe we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living, because Scripture tells us that, but I also believe that our greatest reward and the greatest thing we're fighting for and holding on to, we will receive our reward one day. And I would fail you as a pastor if I did not tell you that truth. The second thing we see is the whole point of this. It says, this is what the Pharisee says, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going after him. That's the point. That's the point. Because the second thing is this. I mean, the fourth thing is this. Fourth point I want you to, the last point. Jesus is not what you think. He is more than you think. He is not what you think. He is more than you think. See, they, the Jewish people had the right expectation in that they believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was going to be their king. They were right about all of those things. But what they failed to see was not only was he their king, but he was coming not only to rescue Israel, but the entire world. Because he was more than just the Messiah. He was also God. And therein is the difference between Jewish, the Jewish religion and Christianity. They were expecting Messiah. What we got was Messiah and God. To this day, they don't believe that those two things are connected. They believe the Messiah was just a man and just a king. But we know that the word of God tells us, and it's spelled out even in the Old Testament, that not only was the Messiah going to be the king of Israel, he was also going to be the suffering servant. And he was also going to be the son of man in Daniel who sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is God. And they couldn't see that for the same reason that sometimes we can't. Because we have the expectation that you're going to be this. And God's saying, I am so much more than that. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And if you will trust me, you will see my goodness. If you will follow me, even when it doesn't under, when you don't understand and it doesn't seem to make sense to you, trust me. Follow me. I work all things out for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. We look at relationships and think, God, I'm disappointed because you didn't let me date this person. And God's saying, I'm not worried about the next two years. I'm thinking about your great-great-grandchildren. We have such a limited perspective. God has an eternal perspective. Let me tell you something as well. C.S. Lewis once said this as well. He said, God is not in time. Time is in God. If there was a piece of paper and all of time was written on that piece of paper, then that, pe that line is time, but that paper is God. It's in him. He is not limited. So even when we're disappointed, even when we don't understand, I don't, God, I wanted to marry them. God, I wanted that job. God, why did I lose them? God, why didn't I get that opportunity? God, why is our nation going in this direction? God is saying, yes, pray. Yes, ask. Yes, believe. But trust me. 
I'll work all things out for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. So as I close, I close with this. Let's build our expectations on his promises, not our presumptions. Trust him. Even when you don't understand, trust him. Even when he doesn't do what you expected him to do, trust him. Even when you thought it was going to flesh itself out one way and it doesn't seem good, if it's not good, he's not done. Because for his people, he works it out for your good. And I want you to remember the words that were written, who these books were penned by. Men who their end on earth look like being beheaded, look like being crucified upside down. That's what their end on earth looked like, but it was not their eternal end because they're in glory with God right now, and it's good. So it doesn't matter what you're facing. Trust him. I believe you'll see his goodness in the land of the living. But I'm assured that you will see his goodness in all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people. We don't always understand why you do what you do. We don't always see your perspective, God, and I know that. And I, Father, I know I've been disappointed at times. I've been disillusioned at times. But I trust you. Some of you this morning, I want you, that's you, nobody looking around. This moment is just for you and God. If you say, Pastor, that's where I'm at, I want you to just lift up both of your hands to heaven and reaffirm to him today, I trust you. This thing I've held on to, I trust you. I'm giving it to you. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep seeking. But I trust you. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't understand it, I trust you. And Father, the irony of this moment is that Friday we'll be celebrating a moment of disappointment and disillusionment even for those closest to you when they watched you die on that cross, Jesus. A Sunday came. And I pray that for every person in this room who's in that Friday moment, they would see Sunday come. You are the God of the resurrection. You defeated death, hell, and the grave. In Jesus' name. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor Gabe, you mentioned the word there, resurrection, which means something's dead, but it's brought back to life. Can I tell you the truth? That if you're far away from Jesus, if you're not born again, you are dead in your sin. And that may seem like a very hard statement. It's a hard reality. But here's the good news. He loves you so much that he wants to bring you back to life. He wants to give you new life. He wants to give you what the Bible calls being born again. Jesus told a religious man, so it doesn't matter how much you've gone to church, he told a religious man, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven unless you are first born again. And he wants to offer that to you with new life, with forgiveness of your sin, 
with a relationship with the Father. But he asked this of you. We like to say this process is as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. That you're far away from God. That the sin in your life, no matter how great or how small, has separated you from him. But B, you believe that God sent Jesus to die on that cross for your sin so you could be forgiven. So that everything you've ever done could be washed away. And in C, you confess, confess that he is now the Lord of your life that your allegiance is to him, that you're giving control of life over to him and you're saying, I will follow you. So with no one looking around, if you say, Pastor, that's me, I want that. I want to accept him for who he is, my Lord, and I will follow. With no one looking around, on the count of three, I'm asking you to simply acknowledge that, to lift up your hand, and I'm going to lead all of us in a prayer of surrender to him to be born again. One, Two, three, if that's you, lift up your hand and you say, that's me, Pastor. I want to be born again today. I want to follow Jesus with my life. Thank you. I see your hand back there. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you, young ladies. I see your hand. Praise God. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. A couple right there. I see your hand. See your hand back there, sir. Praise God. You can put him down. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud. There's nothing magical about these words I'm going to say if you mean them from your heart he's going to save you in this moment say this with me say dear Lord Jesus I believe you are the son of God I believe on the cross you died for my sin for my guilt for my shame I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go there and you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, purpose on earth, and a relationship with God the Father. I turn away from my sin, repenting of my sin. I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. Heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate with every person that prayed that prayer to be born again.